Well, good morning again. It's good to be with you this morning. Our scripture passage this morning comes from the book of Psalms as we continue our series through the Psalms this summer. And this morning, we'll be going to an early part of the Psalms. We'll be looking at Psalm, Psalm 9 together. Now, the title for this sermon series is Psalms for the Soul. Psalms for the Soul. And there's a, a reason it's titled that. It's because the Psalms speak to so many different aspects of our lives, um, not just sort of to our intellects, but to our very beings, to our emotions, to who we are, to our souls. And it instructs us how we're to, to live. In a sense, it, it teaches us how to be truly human, um, humans in light of a God who has spoken to us. How do we as humans respond to this God with all that we are? Not just maybe the, the things that are comfortable, but even the things that are difficult. Every part of, of who we are, everything we encounter. And so this morning in this psalm, we'll catch a glimpse of that, of bringing everything that we are, everything we have to God in prayer. And we'll see a picture of God who is great, who is full of grace, gentleness, and all of this shines forth as we look at God's Word this morning. So would you turn in your copy of God's Word, if you have one this morning, to Psalm 9, and would you stand for the reading of God's Word? Psalm 9. To the choir master, according to Muth Laban, a psalm of David, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exalt in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne, giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I will rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they have made. In the net that they have hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has exalted judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. As we turn to it, Lord, would you instruct us? Would you teach us? Would you guide us? Lord, would we be able to sing with this psalmist, sing praises to you, cry out to you? Would you teach us even how to do that more this morning? Lord, you bless the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts together. I ask this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. If you've been a, a parent at any stage of your life, you'll know that very quickly you realize how much little children need to be taught. 
pretty much everything they know, they have to learn. They don't come sort of prepackaged with a skill set of, of how to live lives. I remember one moment uh, when our children were young. Uh, I was home for the day with one of our girls, and I was trying to teach her how to drink from a sippy cup. And I tried all day, and I failed completely. She would not learn how to li- uh, drink from this, this cup. And, and then Virginia came home, my wife, and, and handed the cup to the child, and immediately she started drinking. <laughs> But not just in those moments, but there, there are a lot of things we need to learn as, and things that we need to be taught from how to manage our time, how to manage our finances, how to tie our shoes, how to hold a cup. All of these things are things that we have been taught, and sometimes we forget that we actually have to learn these things. Well, this psalm this morning is going to teach us to do something. Um, and sometimes when we come to the Psalms, we, we sort of, we think we know what we're getting into, and, and a lot of times we come to the Psalms just for encouragement, and maybe that's sort of your, your Psalm diet, is when you're sort of struggling, you go and you turn to the Psalms, and you sort of maybe dip your toe into the Psalms and, and read a Psalm and find some encouragement, and that's, that's good and well, but there's also other things that the Psalms offer us, maybe something a little bit more substantive and a little bit more shaping. This psalm today will, will teach us something, and it will teach us how to pray. It will teach us how to pray. Now, you might say this morning, I, I know how to pray. I've been praying for a long time. I know how to pray. And, and that, that may be very true. I think many of us are probably faithful in prayer and, and have learned a lot of what prayer means. But prayer is not something that is organic to us. It's not something that sort of innately comes out of us. It's something we do need to be taught. Think of Jesus' disciples. When they were spending time with him, they asked him this question, Lord, teach us to pray. And he gives us the Lord's Prayer there, but, but also in Scripture, we're given all of the Psalms that, that functionally teach us how to pray. They are examples of prayer. And I don't think any of us here this morning would say you have mastered prayer. If you have, think you have mastered prayer this morning, I hope as we dive into Psalm 9, you'll see that there is greater depth, greater wonder, greater bringing of our very selves to God in requests and also in thanksgiving that will expand our, our hearts and our minds this morning. What we'll see is that this psalm gives us an alphabet of grace that calls us to be attentive to God, an alphabet of grace that calls us to be attentive to God. And there are two heartbeats of prayer that we see in this, this psalm. The first is one of, of requesting and the other is that of thanksgiving, requesting and thanksgiving. So let's look at these first, first verses, verse 1, as it begins to recount with confidence what God has, has done. One thing to note about this psalm is that it is an acrostic. Now, that might, what is an acrostic? Acrostic, if you've maybe done these, I don't know when you do acrostics anymore, but they're, they're a thing where you take the letters of the alphabet a, a through Z, and you fill in sort of a, a statement, and it's, it helps us remember things. Now, there are several psalms that are acrostics, and this is one of them. It's an acrostic, not obviously in English, but in the original Hebrew that, that works us through a part of the alphabet. Now, why would you do that? It's not just sort of an artistic literary device, but it helps us remember, it helps shape us, and remind us of what is true. It's, it's a teaching tool. And God at His providence uses teaching tools to remind us of, of what is true. Now, this, this alphabet, if you will, of grace is one that is, is incomplete. Sometimes psalmists don't use all the letters in the alphabet. Now, now, why is that? Did they just sort of forget some letters or did it kind of get edited out? No, it seems that it was intentional. Sometimes the things of God are so grand that you can't quite pigeonhole them into this, this acrostic. 
Or sometimes the things of the world are so difficult, so hard, that they don't line up with a perfectly ordered reality. And yet, in this, God, through his uh, servant David, through this psalm, gives us this alphabet of grace. And so in verse 1, we see the beginnings of this. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. Every part of me comes and gives praise to God. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. David is declaring what he, he will do. It's his focus, it's his intention that when he goes to God, he will declare what is true, giving thanks with every part of him, his whole heart. It's, it's an all-encompassing reality. His heart, soul, mind, and strength, everything is sort of wrapped up in this phrase here, not just sort of some peripheral part of him, but his very essence, who he is, he will give thanks to God from that, from that place in his heart. Why does he do this? Well, he recounts the wonderful deeds of God. He has a list, so to speak, and he goes through the things that God has done in his life and says, God has been faithful here and here. Maybe he went back to, to creation and said, God, is his wonderful deeds of creation, his wonderful deliverance in the Exodus. We know stories from David's own life, places where he had been delivered from Saul, from, from Goliath. These moments David had sort of impressed on him, and so he gives thanks with his whole heart. And that wholehearted thanks leads to an exalted praise in verse 2. I will be glad and exalt in you. I will sing praises to your name, O Most High. He doesn't sort of contain it in, but as he goes to God in prayer, he gives us this example of, of being glad, exalting in him, singing praise to the one who is, who is most high. It's interesting that David does this before he begins listing his, his problems. Many of us, when we come to prayer, we just sort of jump in on what we need. And that's, that's not inherently wrong or problematic, but it's interesting to note here that David begins by giving thanks. He's going to cry out to God in some very strong, strong ways, but here he begins by recounting what God has done for us. He sees the world as a place where God is engaged and active, and so he comes to God and says, I know you have been faithful. I'm going to praise you for that. I'm going to look at my life at the ways that you have given me all that I have, and I will be glad, and I will sing praises to your name. Uh, I think many of our illustrations this morning are going to be about young kids. It just fell out that way. When, when our first child was born, I remember writing thank you notes. Now, this is, you know, a convention that we do in society, right? You get a gift, you're supposed to write a thank you note, and I'm not passing judgment if you, if you don't do that or whatever, but we were writing thank you notes. And, you know, we, people had been very generous to us. We had all this sort of baby gear that we didn't know we needed, and it was all piled up there, and we're sitting in our living room writing thank you notes. And, and honestly, we were thankful. We were rejoicing. We were grateful for all of God's provision for us, but it felt kind of methodical. Uh, by your like 50th thank you note, you're just sort of like, uh, it, I've, I've written the same thing five times, and let's get this, get this in the mail. Now, why do I bring that up? Sometimes when we come to a psalm, I think that's how we experience this language of thanksgiving. It's sort of a perfunctory thing. It's sort of, we're just going to say this at the beginning. We're going to say thanks and then get on with the real business of what we, what we need, what we ask. It's not, that's not how David instructs us to pray. He instructs us that our whole hearts, not just sort of some passive external reality, but our whole heart is given over to thanks of God. And, and how do we begin to, to have that reality in our lives? Well, it begins, as David does, with recounting all of his wonderful deeds. That old sort of hymn, count your blessings, name them one by one. Like that, that's, a, that's a biblical reality to look at your life and be attentive to God. 
There are so many parts of our lives that I think we just sort of forget that God is what's behind that. Everything good we have comes from God. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from our Father. Everything we have. David isn't ignoring the pain. He's going to cry out in pain, in affliction, in real, tangible, physical, emotional grief and frustration. He's going to experience that. And yet, behind all of that, he knows that there is a God who is the one who has done wonderful deeds, who has brought deliverance, who has brought the things that that he needs. And so even as we're attentive to God, we need to remind ourselves to be discerners of where God is active, discerners of where God is, is active, whatever practice that might look in your life, but actually reminding yourselves that what we have comes from God. We do this maybe at, at meals, right? We thank God for our food. And, but again, it, it becomes this perfunctory sort of function where we just quickly say it and we don't really pause to consider the wonder of that. Maybe, maybe you need a friend, a spouse, somebody to ask. If you're looking at your life right now and you, can, you can't really discern where God has been wonderfully at work, maybe you need to ask a friend. Maybe ask a spouse to say, where where have you seen God at work in my life? And you might be surprised that there there are things that you haven't noticed. Maybe it was a good night's sleep when you were tired, being a gift from God. And maybe it's it's an encouraging word that somebody gave you in a moment where you were discouraged. Those are things that are God's wonderful deeds. Those are things that God works in and through his people so that we proclaim his name and say, God, you are a good God. We need to learn to do that with our whole hearts more and more, beginning with thanks, recounting the things that God has done. Now, this isn't just sort of an abstract giving praise, but it's tangibly connected to something that God has done in David's life, that God brings judgment. You see this in these next verses, 3 through 8 and 15 through 16, that God is a God who brings judgment. Verse 13, when my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. Now, this is assuming something David is saying. When my enemies turn back, it looks possibly to a present moment, but also possibly to the future and says, in the future, I I know my enemies will will turn back. They will retreat. They will run from me. They will stumble and perish before your presence. That same presence that has been so comforting to the psalmist and so comforting to ours, God's face sort of shining on us, is to those who are opposed to God something that they, they run from. Why? Because there is judgment. Verse 4, for you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. Righteous judgment is given. This idea of right judgment is not God sort of just sitting up there and and sort of dispensing verdicts, but it's actually a restorative view of, of justice. It's often what we see in the Old Testament. Not simply does God sort of dispense a sentence on those who have done wrong, but his justice is putting back what has been broken putting back what has been broken. We see a glimmer of this in Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 4 where he says this, the prophet, he shall judge between the nations, this is God, and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Isaiah is looking to a future day there, but that's, that's the type of justice that God is, is looking for here, one that puts what is wrong back to, to what is right. 
And the quarrel here is with the nations. In verse 5, you have rebuked the nations. The rebuke there is a, is a scolding. It's almost a, a fatherly way of, of saying you are, you are wrong. And it's even stronger than that in some sense of almost a, a battle cry that makes the enemies cringe. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. And, and in the Psalms, when we see this language, there are moments where we think, is this, is this too strong? Is this too strong to actually put on my, my lips as I, as I pray? It's a reminder that there are things in this world that are truly wrong and evil. And the psalmist knows that. And that you and I know that. There are things in our world, even as we look at the, the news in the last few weeks, that are unspeakably evil. And to, to pray words like this is not, is not wrong, trusting that God is the one who brings deliverance, that vengeance is his, that he will repay, that there are consequences that he will bring about. Verse 6 reminds us that the enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. The language of nations here is one of, of Israel there being sort of God's people and people pressing in, foreign nations pressing in. The picture for us today is us as, as believers, and, and it's not to, to sort of make this a, a geopolitical text where there's some Christian nation and, and others that aren't. It's, it's talking about how God's people, as they seek to work faithfully and live out faithfully what He has called them to, will experience opposition. And in those moments, it is appropriate to call out to God that He would be the one who delivers Verses 15 and 16 give us a little more of a picture. We won't spend much time there, but it gives us a picture of sort of evil having its effect. Sort of you do something and, and you're going to get caught up in the very thing that you began. They sunk in the pit they have made. Sort of you, you dig the pit, you, you, you go into this evil and it, it rewards you in that way. It's not sort of a, a cosmic karma picture, but it's a picture of God foreordaining what comes to pass. That when we pursue things that are evil and unrighteous, there are consequences for that. And what he does is he grounds all of this in some eternality, in something that is eternal. That's important for us to remember as we pray. Sometimes we pray only for sort of temporal, immediate things. But what does it say in verse 7? That you, Lord, sits enthroned forever. This eternality language weaves through the psalm. I don't know if any of you have heard of Alex Hammond. He's a climber. Maybe you've seen the movie Free Solo. It was recording his climb of El Capitan in uh, California. You know that rock face? It's 3,000 feet. Now, ordinarily, it takes somebody about a week, give or take, to climb up that. They camp out on the rock face, and they go slowly with a series of ropes and all these things. Well, Alex Hammond free soloed it. That means he climbed it without any support and with no ropes in three hours and 56 minutes. It's fascinating to see this man climb this thing. Now, now obviously, if you're free soloing a wall, any mistake is, is fatal. And so the interviewer in this documentary asks him the question, so, so, so sort of talk me through this. What, what's going through your mind? And what this climber reveals is he says, well, I'll, I'll fall. There will be a moment of, of pain, maybe, and then that will be it. He has sort of a, a nihilistic view of, of things, a view that there's really nothing else after this. And that propels him to climb up these, these rock faces, seeking adrenaline and joy. But what does that have to do with, with us? Sometimes I think we're like that. We really think that, that all that really is ultimate is, is what happens today or in my life. And we forget that the Psalms, in our, even our prayers, teach us to pray with eternity in mind. That, that we, are, we are created for something more than just the immediate, that there is an eternal reality 
that is waiting for us, where judgment is brought. Judgment on us for our sin if we're not in Christ, if we don't have Christ's forgiveness, and, and justice for the wrongs that we experience. And that is a hope that is central to the Psalms, that we would understand that there is an eternal aspect to this. And so that we would pray with eternity in mind. We also see as we recount who God is that we come to a God who is gentle to those who are afflicted. Verses 9 through 12 show us this, that the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Later, it'll add the language of afflicted in verse 12. In our moments where we are downtrodden, when we are experiencing real difficulty, we have a God who is gentle with us. You see this throughout Scripture. We read it in uh, Matthew 11 today, a God who is gentle. Jesus, who is gentle and lowly, one who, in those moments when we are afflicted, he is, he is near to us. And so we, that, that should give us a degree of confidence in our prayers. A God who is judge, who is glorious and great, is also this God who, who does not forsake those who seek them, as verse 10 reminds us. Those who put your name or know your name put their trust in you. If, if that is us, we have a God who doesn't forget us even in the scope of eternity, in the scope of all the, the real difficult things that we walk through, we have a God who knows us, who cares for us. And this leads the psalmist to, to really break out in song in verse 11. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the people his deeds. He's recounting again what he said he will do in verse 1. The psalmist is now doing, praising God's name because he knows that he is a God who is not far off, but a God who is, who is near near to us in our affliction, when we are poor, and when we are needy. I do want to be cognizant of the fact that, that in this psalm, when we see these kind of categories of afflicted and poor, that, that often there's a, there's a definable category of people in mind, people who are financially poor, people who are um, oppressed in sort of the society of this, this day that the psalmist is writing about. But it doesn't mean that we sort of don't relate to that. There are points in our life where we know what it's like to be afflicted, when we know what it's like to, to be in pain, to, to really feel helpless, to not know how do we take the next step, maybe the decision we have to make this week, maybe the conversation we have to have, whatever it, it may be, these moments where we feel deeply afflicted, deeply confused, deeply in need, we have a God who is, who is there, who even as we seek Him, is, is there. We're not seeking God in the sense that he's out there, we have to find him, but, but turning to him, to his face that he extends to us, that he blesses us with. We have a God who is, who is near to us, who is gentle to us in our affliction. So if we begin by learning to pray with this alphabet of grace that shows us that we can recount the blessings of God, recount what he has done, we also come and we request in our challenges. Now, what's interesting about this psalm is David has said he will give thanks to God. He has given thanks to God in verse 11, but then in verse 13, he says, Be gracious to me, O Lord. Many of us might have thought that this should be the, the start of the psalm, where he begins and says, Be gracious to me. Would you have mercy on me? But even after David has recounted, even after he has sort of told of all the wonderful things that God has done, even after he has sung praises, he is still in the middle of the situation in the middle of his affliction and his need. And so in that moment, he comes again to God and says, God, for me to continue in this prayer, to continue in this praise for you, I need your grace. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates 
of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion, I may rejoice in your salvation. He's saying, Lord, would you, would you allow me to do what happened in verse 11, singing praises to God? This sort of contrast of the gates of hell going down to destruction and then being turned around instead to the gates of, of Zion, the gates of Jerusalem, the gates that sort of show where God is in Israel, that you by your grace would bring me there. That's what he prays for. He asks that God's grace would again do something. It should show us the, the power and the importance of, of prayer. I think many of us are, are so used to praying. Maybe, what, what do you do when you get together with a group of Christians for a Bible study or whatever? Um, you, you open in prayer. You have, and if it's a more formal event, maybe a graduation or something, you call it an invocation, right? And we have these sort of high, fancy words for, for prayer. And I think sometimes that disguises the reality of what we're doing. I remember opening uh, for prayer for a meeting somewhere else in sort of a, a secular-type context, but they, they wanted a pastor to sort of open in prayer. And so I, I opened in prayer. But it, it, as I left, I realized that it just sort of felt like a, a nice little thing that we add on to our lives. We feel better because we had somebody sort of pray for us. David understands the real power of prayer. Maybe we've been inoculated to the power of prayer because we're so familiar with it. But here David, in his moment of affliction, says, God, I want to praise your name. I want to again recount what is true, but Lord, I need your grace. There's this realness of prayer, an appeal to, to, to grace. Even as David knows sort of the, the greatness of God, his grandeur, his ability to judge, and also his gentleness. He, he moves seamlessly between those, those two poles, if you will. He doesn't sort of hold them in opposition, but he goes to a God who he knows, and he prays so that he would recount again the wonder of his salvation. And as he does that, he knows that God hears. Verse 17 and 18 show us that God remembers the needy. 17 says, the wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. Now, this is a picture of sort of, again, the, the reality that evil will be judged. The wicked, those who are in sin, will go to a place of, of punishment that is described here as Sheol. All the nations that forget God. They, they return to Sheol. It's not that they were there and then came out and sort of back and forth. It's, it's going back to where they truly belong, who they truly are. And it speaks here of, of the nation sort of as categories of people who oppose the truth of who God is. They oppose that, and there is a, a consequence that they have actively forgotten God, which are, which are chilling, chilling words for all of us to consider. Where have we forgotten God? But the good news is even if we forget God, we, as we turn to him, we have a God who in verse 18 will not always forget us. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. This is, this is some, some real gospel hope to take to your prayer life, that you will not be forgotten, because we have a God who, who does not forget. One theologian, Brevard Childs, put it this way. He said, God's remembering always implies his movement toward the object of his memory. See, when God remembers, it's not that he had forgotten but it's God acting out on his faithfulness, on his covenant promises. When he remembers, when he is mindful of us, he moves towards us. And so as we seek him, as we turn to him and pray, as we know his name and we seek more of who he is, he, he is a God who is near to us, God who draws near to us. 
Now, how does David end this? It might be a moment where we think he should just wrap it up with a nice praising of God, but there's something else. Even as he knows all of this, and this is instructive for our prayer lives, even as he knows all of this, as he has given thanks to God, recounted what is true, requested things from God, he ends on this note of verse 19. Arise, O Lord. Arise, O Lord. Is it a strong sort of declaration, an act or an asking that God would finally act, that man would not prevail, that the nations be judged before him, put them in fear, O Lord, that the nations know that they are but men. It's a call to, to God in a, a degree of desperation, a degree of, of need and that maybe we, we experience, that maybe we know, and it invites us to say those same things, even with thanksgiving, even with praise, even with all of this truth, to say, arise, O God, would you not forget me? Maybe you think those words are, are disrespectful, or maybe those are words are, are ones that relate to a heart that is not of, of faith. But here, David, who praises God with his whole heart, also joins these words in 19 to say, Arise, O Lord, would you step in? We need that kind of language in our prayer lives, that kind of language that reflects the wonder of who God is. And so this is our, our alphabet, if you will. Does this tell us everything about prayer? No but it gives us the outlines, an outline that is dependent on God's grace, allowing us to approach him in this way. And so what should our response be? Well, I said a lot of our illustrations this morning would be about children. If you've ever taught a child to read, or, or rather watched a child learn how to read, there's sort of steps that you go through, right? First, you have to identify the letters of the alphabet. And once you do that, then you sort of learn the sounds associated with it. And then comes the fun part, trying to put all of that jumble together in a way that is intelligible. Well, I, I watched this recently with a, with a child, and, and there's this moment of, of joy when it all sort of comes together. And they, they say these words, I'm, I'm reading, I'm reading. I can, I can sound out the word cat, and I'm, I'm reading, and it's, it's joy-filled. I think this psalm points us to something similar. Maybe, maybe we know the alphabet of prayer, we know that we ask for things, we know that we, and maybe even know the sounds, and we can put some of it together. This psalm this morning asks us to, to put together the alphabet in, in prayer so that with this psalmist we can proclaim praise to God and come to Him in thanks. And with that small child say, I'm praying. I'm praying to a God who is there, a God who will not forget me. In all the moments where I feel like maybe He is, but a God who is truly there because I know his character. I know who he is. Uh, traditionally, sermons were three points and a poem. So we're going to end with two points and one poem today. This is from a, a hymn sometimes we sing. It says this. It's by Henry Light. Father-like, he tends and spares us. Well, our feeble frame he knows. In his hand, he gently bears us, rescues us from all our foes. This is the God we have. This is our alphabet of grace. We can come to God with boldness, with joy, because of his grace. Let's pray. Father, it is a privilege to pray to you. Lord, would you teach us all the wonder of prayer? Even as we go through more psalms this summer, that we would have our prayer language, our prayer verbs that we use be, be expanded, be deepened. Lord, would we step more into the wonder and the mystery of what prayer is, the, the ability to, to speak even your words back to you, to respond to what you said in your word with, with words that you put on our hearts. 
Lord, would we pray with boldness, with confidence? Would we, with David, ask that you would be gracious to us and rejoice and sing with David because that is true? We ask this in your name. Amen.